My sermon is entitled, I don't, I'm not usually big on titles, but this morning it's called The Blessed King. And you might be wondering at this point, well, where's he going to go? He could go so many different places with the blessed king. Uh, the Old Testament. King Saul, he was the first king of Israel, perhaps, or maybe David. David was a man after God's own heart. He, surely he's going to talk about King David. Or maybe Solomon. In Solomon's time, Israel was so fruitful. Israel saw most of the land promises that they were promised. Surely he's going to talk about King Solomon. Well, this morning, leaving the suspense a little bit, this morning we're going to look at someone different because I think it's important. I love the Old Testament. If, if you know me at my core, I love teaching through the Old Testament. Uh, it, it, it shows God's glory, and it's so ancient. Uh, people say that the God of the New Testament is not the same God as the God of the Old Testament. They're, they're very different. The God of the Old Testament, he's so mean. He's, there's no grace there. And New Testament, obviously, there's grace and there's mercy, but not in the Old Testament. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this morning, the blessed king, we're going to look at King Ahab. That's got to be a mistake, right? King Ahab is the blessed king? How is that possible? You may not even remember much about Ahab. You may not remember uh, that his wife is Jezebel. But I'll ask you this. When's the last time you heard someone named Ahab or someone named Jezebel? It's because even though we don't remember exactly what they've done, we remember how desperately wicked they were. To call someone a Jezebel is to call someone a woman with loose morals. You may only know Ahab from Moby Dick, Herman Melville's novel. Well, he used Ahab for that express purpose, that Ahab didn't care a lick about the people under him, intent on one purpose, fulfilling only his own desires. And those desires in Herman Melville was to seek the white whale. But in the Old Testament, it was his own good. Well, I think it's important, just a very quick jet tour through the Old Testament, just to bring us up to speed where we are when King Ahab is king. You remember the Israelites, they leave Egypt, and they settle eventually in the land of Israel. And there's 12 tribes. And if you, to get a good understanding of the geography, take Tennessee, all of us can put that in our minds, and then flip it on its side. That's basically Israel, the land of Israel. So imagine Judah and Benjamin are in the south, and the rest of the ten tribes are in the north of Tennessee, flipped on its side. And so all twelve tribes were unified for quite a while. Under David they were unified. Under Solomon they were unified. And we know that they were given the law, and they were told in the law that you could worship in one place. That is the tabernacle. And the eventual resting place of the tabernacle was Jerusalem. And there was one place. And if you sacrificed anywhere else, you would be stoned. It was disobedience. And so all 12 tribes, even though they, everybody in the north, everybody in the south, they had to make their way to Jerusalem twice a year. Solomon had a son whose name was Rehoboam. And in his time, he was so foolish that the Lord split the kingdoms in his time. He was given two tribes, 
Two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. The rest of the ten tribes were given to some other man, King Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, if you read Chronicles, if you read Kings, you'll know, well, there's a mnemonic device. There were uh, good kings in the, the south, and we have a mnemonic device for the north to know how many good kings there were in the north. Uh, it goes like zero. None. There were no good kings in the north. None. Because Jeroboam put the northern kingdom on a collision course. He was afraid. Since Israel, all Israel, had to go down to Jerusalem to sacrifice, he thought, oh my goodness, I have ten tribes. I better do something. Because they got to go to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is way down in the south in Judah. If they go to Jerusalem, they're going to be swayed, and they're gonna, they'll be swayed against my kingdom, so I know what I'll do. In the northernmost part of my kingdom and in the southernmost part, I'll put idols so that when they go to celebrate Passover or the Feast of uh, Weeks, they'll just go to these idols and they'll worship there. And so every king that came after that, it says they didn't depart from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Naboth. That's what they're talking about, setting these idols up to be worshipped instead of the true God. This brings us to the split kingdom. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 16. And so as reprehensible as this was, and as disgusting as this was, Ahab's father walked in these ways. 1 Kings 16.25 Omri, who is Ahab's father, did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, and, by, and in his sin, by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. And then skip down to uh, verse 31. Verse 30. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, listen, more than all who were before him, and it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, uh, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. Jericho. He was not supposed to do that. In Joshua, you were told you would be cursed if you rebuilt Jericho. And here he is, rebuilding it. He did more evil than all who were before him. He married into this family that was known for being evil. And he started Israel worshiping the Baals. He did so much wrong. Let me just list a few things. He made an alliance with people that you weren't supposed to make alliances with, the king of the Sidonians. He foolishly married a woman who was known to be an idolater. He allowed uh, Naboth the Jezreelite to be killed for a vegetable garden. He allowed Baal to be worshipped in Israel. He allowed his wife to persecute and kill the prophets. 
He allowed his wife to persist in evil ways. He wanted to kill Elijah, the great prophet. He built the first temple to Baal in Israel. And the worst of all, he continued in unbelief. Interwoven, though, through this narrative of northern Israel's defection and the evil kings leading Israel into sin is the God of heaven whose loving kindness is everlasting. We have six illustrations of God's grace in the life of King Ahab which demonstrate how gracious, how merciful, how long-suffering our God is with unbelievers. And if he is this gracious with unbelievers, this merciful, this long-suffering, how much more is he with his beloved children? Well, the first, God shows he is the true God who controls the weather. Turn over to chapter 17, 1 Kings 17, 1. 1 Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is the first mention of Elijah the prophet in Scripture. Uh, Wesley, the great preacher, said it's as if he dropped out of the clouds. We aren't to think, though, that Elijah controls the weather. He knew Scripture. He knew Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11 says that if Israel would be obedient, the Lord would give them rain in its season. He would bless Israel. And he turns and he says, beware. If your hearts are not deceived, that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. God declares this beforehand. And Ahab knows this, and yet he spurns it. Elijah knows it as well, and he prays for it. He says, Israel's being disobedient. Lord, take away the blessing. Take away the rain. We know it to be three and a half years. This is famine conditions. And you have to think that, you know, Ahab and Jezebel, they probably joked about it for a while, you know, because they didn't believe him. Ah, It's been a week. Hey, Jez, it hasn't rained. It's been a week. Two weeks go by. It still hasn't rained. What a coincidence. Two weeks. Three weeks. Has it rained? Surely it's rained, right, Ahab? It's rained. Three and a half years. They blame Elijah for the lack of rain. 1 Kings 18.1. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Then skip down to verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? He had the gall to call this prophet of of the Lord the troubler of Israel, and yet he was plunging northern Israel into sin with Baal worship. Verse 18, he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, 
because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Elijah tells Ahab that a, a shower is coming and that the Lord, <clears throat> in spite of their continued disobedience, the Lord would bless them and show them continued mercy and grace. God restores the weather after three and a half years. Second, God shows He is the true God to be worshipped. He is the true God who answers prayer. Stay in 1 Kings 18. We step backwards just a few verses before the rain is restored to that familiar scene in Mount Carmel. Right after Elijah tells Ahab that he hasn't troubled Israel, it's actually Ahab and his father's household who has. He says in verse 19, Now then, send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel, as we talked about, she is the daughter of King Ethbaal of the Sidonians. This is the region of Tyre and Sidon. They were known to be not only worshipers of Baal, but they worshipped Astarte and Asherah. And you say, well, who cares? It's important because what these gods were worshipped for was because of their fertility. They believed that if you prayed to them, if you sacrificed to them, if you uh, every morning got up and put, you know, fruits and vegetables near them, they would bless you. They would send the rain, not the Lord. This is why it's so reprehensible that they worship the Baals, that they worship the Asherah, because they were attributing the blessing of God to these idols, these wooden idols of stone and wood. And at this time, anyone could become a priest. We know that by the law, only Levites could be priests, and within the Levites, only Kohathites could be priests. Jeroboam made it so that everyone could be a priest, anyone who wanted. Jeroboam says, anyone who came, they could be a priest. You know the story. They gather. Verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. They both prepare offerings. He lets the Baal worshipers go first. No fires to be placed underneath. They would call upon Baal to supply the fire. And this appealed to them because Baal is the, he's the god of uh, thunder and lightning and storms. So surely our God can supply a little fire. No problem. For hours, hours, he lets them call upon Baal. They started in the morning. He mocks them. All through the day, he mocks them. He says, maybe he's meditating. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you need to be a little bit louder. Shout a little louder. Maybe he's, you know, he's sleeping. You'll wake him up. Verse 29. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Sundown. He lets these jokers cut themselves shout, scream, pray, rave. And remember, Elijah is a divine prophet. He knows by direct revelation exactly what's going to occur. 
and he just sits back and lets them go. It's an amazing display. It's, uh, when I get up to heaven, I'm going to see the DVD of this because it's, it's just amazing. The Lord's going to show everyone present, everyone present, without a doubt that he is the Lord. He tells the people to come near. He builds an altar with 12 stones, reminding them that they are supposed to be unified with their other tribes, with their Israelite brothers. He arranges the wood. He puts an ox on top of the wood. He digs a trench, tells them three times to pour water over everything. Look at Elijah's prayer, verse 36. At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That word for Lord there is his personal name. They understood. Even these unwilling, unbelieving prophets of Baal, prophets of the Asherah, they fell down and they worshiped the Lord. They were compelled. They saw this amazing display. They had to fall down. They had to worship the holiness, the majesty that would, would have been displayed would have been awesome. Imagine the clarity of the scene, not only to them but to Elijah as well, to see in such a grand scene the Lord displaying that he is their Lord. He shows he is the true God to be worshipped. He is the true God who answers prayer. And all of this is right before Ahab's eyes. He sees it all. Ahab returns home and tells Jezebel. At that point, they want to kill Elijah still. Well, third, God shows he is the true God who delivers Israel, even in their disobedience. In chapter 20, if you turn over there, Ben-Hadad has come against Israel. And you may read in the Old Testament, uh, Ben-Hadad, and he seems to live forever. It's, it's a title, much like the pharaohs of Egypt. Ben-Hadad in Aram, uh, that's their title. So in chapter 20, Ben-Hadad has come against Samaria to besiege it. This is the capital of the northern kingdom at this time. Omri built a palace in Samaria, and his son Ahab continued that capital. This is game over. Ben-Hadad has come with, and he has amassed 100,000 soldiers. They surround the capital. We're going to learn later that there's only 7,200 soldiers of Ahab. This is it. This is King Ahab being judged. Game over. Who could save Ahab from this? Who would save Ahab from this? He's evil. He consults with his elders who were probably idolaters like him, they say not to consent. Because Ben-Hadad, when he comes near, he says, I'm going to take everything. No mercy. I'm going to take your wives, your children, your possessions. He says, I'm going to take everything you hold dear. Watch how God divinely 
and mercifully saves Ahab. Look at chapter 20, verse 13. Now behold, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, and said, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? hundred thousand soldiers. He'd see it. He'd smell them. Behold, I will deliver them into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. How gracious. He does not deserve this. He doesn't deserve anything. Obviously, neither do we. But this king of Israel, he is leading ten tribes into sin day after day. He doesn't deserve to be saved. He doesn't even inquire of the Lord. The Lord has to come to him with a divine prophet, and he says, even though you didn't ask me, here's what's going on. The prophet tells Ahab they will attack again. They're given, Ahab is given specifics on how to defeat these guys. Verse 28, Then a man of God came near and spoke to the king of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said, The Lord is a God of the mountains, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. As I said, there's 100,000 Arameans. These guys, these were mercs in the ancient Near East. Uh, they were hired by all kinds of countries to go into battle against everyone. They were, these were amazing soldiers. 7,200 against 100,000. That's not very many it will be a slaughter. Well, Ahab spurns the grace of the Lord even though these Arameans are given into his hand. He eventually spares the life of Ben-Hadad and makes a treaty with him. He wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to kill him. But he dis he's disobedient, spurns the grace of the Lord. Four. God shows he is the true God who knows all things. God knows all. He knows all the evil that Ahab does. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Ahab, you may not remember this story, but Ahab in Samaria, he wanted an herb garden, a vegetable garden. And so a guy had a plot of land who was near uh, his uh, palace. And he said, hey, can I have that plot of land? I, I want to make a, uh, a garden on it. And the guy refuses, Naboth. And so you know what the king does? He falsely accuses him, they stone him, and he takes possession of the land anyway. This did not escape God's notice. For a vegetable garden, he kills his neighbor. Chapter 21, verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down <clears throat> to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick, licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. There's nothing that escapes the notice of the Lord. Verse 29, Ahab does humble himself. He doesn't repent, but he does humble himself. And the Lord, even though it's not true repentance, the Lord is gracious to him. In verse 29, do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. 
Even though there's not true repentance, God is still gracious. God is still merciful. There's no change, no repentance. God shows not only this, but he is the true God who tells Ahab the truth about his final battle. Ahab's not going to live forever. He wants to go into battle against Ramoth Gilead, and therefore he asks Jehoshaphat, who is the king at this time in the south. He says, come with me into battle with Ramoth Gilead. This is a horrible mistake on Jehoshaphat's part. He's actually a good king in the south. Later he's rebuked for doing this by Jehu the prophet. Jehu says, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath upon yourself from the Lord? But he, in, at any rate, goes into battle. Um, and standard practice before you go into battle in the ancient Near East was to inquire of the Lord uh, in Israel or inquire of your prophets. Jehoshaphat asked for a prophet of the Lord before they go into battle. Instead, he's given idolaters. Uh, 22, 1 Kings 22, verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered all the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Should I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall, shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Well, is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? Jehoshaphat knows these are idolaters. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, ah, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. But Jehoshaphat said, Oh, let, let not the king say so. Apparently they were speaking to false prophets, and for just a show, they told the king what they wanted to hear. Yet there is one prophet that they can ask. Verse 17. And this is what Micaiah says. I saw all Israel scattered in, on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his own house in peace. Then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? These prophets tell the king what they want to hear. Micaiah speaks the truth. Now listen to what he tells Ahab now. This is what we always want when we pray. Lord, show me. What are you doing here? The Lord is going to show Ahab divinely exactly what he's doing. Look in verse 19. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of, all of his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets, and the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. This prophet declares what we always want to know, what the Lord is doing. He's given, Ahab is graciously and mercifully given a glimpse of heaven and told exactly what the Lord is doing. And yet, Ahab continues in his unbelief. 
He continues in believing that he only wants to hear what good prophets, prophets that say good about him. In God's sovereignty, he allows Ahab to see into the spiritual realm and see exactly what the Lord is doing. And yet, he continues in unbelief, and he continues to go into battle. Well, this is the final battle. Ahab is not going to survive. And therefore, God shows he is the true God by allowing Ahab the presence of mind to see it unfold. He gives Ahab time to let it sink in, gives him one last chance. 1 Kings 22:34. We need to read this together. You need to see these words. 1 Kings 22:34. Now a certain man drew his bow at random, at random, and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and take me out of the fight, for I am severely wounded. Ahab disguised himself so he wouldn't look like the king in this battle. And yet, God sovereignly found him through a random arrow. Verse 35, the battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in, in his chariot in front of the Arameans and died at evening. And the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of his chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried him, the king in Samaria. In Wesley's sermon on Ecclesiastes 9, he says that in God's sovereignty, even though Ahab thought it was a good idea to disguise himself in battle, an arrow shot at random found him. He dies, but he is given time to repent. How gracious is our Lord in that King Ahab had lived a life of disobedience, and yet the Lord, at the end of his life, gives him time to think about all that had happened, the three prophets that he brought his way. Where's Ahab now? I don't know. One thing is for sure, he has perfect theology wherever he is. But what other man do we see in Scripture who had so much grace? so much mercy to repent. Even at the end of his life, the Lord sovereignly lets him be propped up in his chariot and see this final battle of which he was told, you're not going to survive. Your army will be beaten. Well, we only looked at six. There were more. We obviously didn't have time to look at them all. But he showed Ahab that he is the true God who controls the weather and the blessing. He answers prayer. He is to be worshipped. He's the one who delivered Israel. He knows all things. His sovereign plan cannot be thwarted. Even sovereignly gave Ahab in the last few moments of his life time to repent, to mull all this over. And you know what's amazing about this? This happened 2,900 years ago. And yet this is an object lesson of not only God's gracious grace, grace and mercy in the life of Ahab, but he's no different to us today. Well, this morning, are you Ahab? Are you Jezebel? Are you continuing in your unbelief? 
If you are, I pray this is the day of your salvation. That you choose, this is the day that you repent. That you don't wait until the end of life. You may not be given a chance like Ahab to look and sit back and mull over your life. It could come today, God forbid, but it could. We don't know. I pray that as you know the gospel, that you know that you are a sinful human being, that you have no resources before a holy God, and that He is infinitely holy. And you can't get to Him. You can't work. You can't put money into the offering to get to Him. You can't work enough. You can't do anything. You can't study enough. It is all by grace that you are saved. And it's from Jesus Christ's sacrifice. He knew we had no resources, and therefore He sent His Son to die on the cross 2,000 years ago. We studied this morning in Sunday school that Christ was lifted up, and He will return in the same way that He, he left. That's our hope. Our hope is Jesus Christ, reserved in heaven for us, and He's coming one day. And what does the Scripture say in Thessalonians? When He comes back, we will meet Him in the air, and thus we will be forever with the Lord. That's our great hope. I pray this morning that if you have a need, you come forward.